Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. In this episode, Hannah Park, Community Manager at Mattermost, and PJ Haggerty, Head of Developer Relations at Mattermost, explore how the pandemic and remote work have changed the direction of the DevOps movement. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create for a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Chicago, Amsterdam, London, and Copenhagen, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. We're live from Go to Copenhagen. I'm Hannah Park. Um, I work at Mattermost as the Workplace Community Manager. And we're here um, interviewing PJ, our head of DevRel. Hey, Hannah. Hey, PJ. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So let's just get right into it. How has work collaboration changed since COVID and we move into after COVID? Well, I think that in the beginning, uh, remote work, you know, pre-COVID was kind of seen as uh, a really nice to have. It was something that, you know, maybe certain people got and certain people didn't. I knew a lot of uh, engineering teams that were definitely remote, but DevOps teams tended to have to be on site uh, so they could collaborate and work together closely. But as we moved into COVID and everyone had to go remote, uh, companies like Mattermost led the way by, by kind of pointing out that it was possible to have a 100% remote team and still have that collaboration, still have that ability to work together securely without, you know, without worrying about too many loopholes. As we move into post-COVID, it seems like there's kind of a dichotomy where on one side you have the people who said, you know, we've really learned something here. We understand that there's great ways to collaborate, communicate, keep everybody in line across time zones around the world and not have to have everyone come into an office every day and deal with a commute or trains or traffic or anything like that. Um, and on the other side, there's kind of a, a more traditionalist point of view where people are saying, well, we've always worked in an office. Why wouldn't we still continue to work in an office? And, and I think there's lots of things that inform that. Some of it is probably, you know, people paid rent or agreed to lease agreements that were years into the future. And they're like, well, we don't want to lose our investment. Uh, but I think that other, other places have seen like the cost savings that they're seeing with people working remotely, which is just kind of the first step. It's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to remote work. Uh, I think that with remote work, it often seems that people are given their own responsibility and they take that on. And granted, you know, to make it clear, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can work remotely. There's, I mean, beyond there being some jobs that you can't do, even in tech, there's certain people that just work better in an office. There's certain people that want to have that daily interaction of face-to-face -face time and water cooler time and whatever. Um, there's startups that still want to have, you know, ping pong tournaments in their office and, and goofy things like that. And that's fine. But at the same time, we have to find a way to make sure that people who want to work remotely, who benefit from working remotely, who have a good environment and can do that, are able to do that continuously. And I think that that's one of the things that we're seeing develop uh, post-COVID. How has open source benefited from people working remotely over the last year and a half? Hugely. I think that a lot of people who didn't expect to get into open source have the opportunity now because I think a lot of people looked at open source as like, well, oh, in my free time or when I have a chance or couldn't do this in the office. So I had to wait to do it on my personal time. Well, we've kind of upended the idea of you have to be in the office from nine to five and your lunch is from 12 to one. We kind of have the idea that as long as you're getting the work done, that's what's important. So I think more and more people are finding opportunities to have things like Open Source Fridays or Freedom Fridays where you're able to work on open source projects. There's opportunities for people to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm home. 
you know, what else am I doing? I might as well go to work on, you know, that cool Go project that I saw a part of. Or, you know, I want to get back into, you know, when I, when I coded in Ruby and helped them out with some documentation. So there was so much more opportunity because people literally didn't have anything else to do. So for op open source developers that were already into open source, they had more time to dedicate to open source. For people that were new to open source, all these doors were opening, all these opportunities where they could see their way into a project. Uh, and I think that, you know, even outside of that, you know, with, with COVID going on, a lot of people got into Twitch streaming and, and YouTube videos, things that were instructional and allowed people to say, okay, so maybe I'm not, you know, the king or queen of development. Maybe I, I'm just getting into this, but hey, these people made a great video about how to write documentation. And I know that the documentation for that project I love isn't so great. I can get into the documentation and start contributing to that. And then they get further and deeper into it. I think there's so many more open source developers over the past year and a half than there were prior to that because those barricades are coming down. Those gates are coming down. People can come in and they're finding that they have the time to do it. Um, I think it's doing away with the idea of, oh, I, I can only do open source if I can do 40 hours of open source a week along with my 40 hour a week job. That's not the case anymore. You can have very, very small bite size increments where you're contributing a little bit here, contributing a little bit there, and finding a way to get that out there. So I think if anything, if there's any positive that came out of COVID, and there are very few positives that came out of COVID, but if there's any positive, it's the fact that people realize that they really can dedicate themselves to the open source world and give back. That's cool. I think even our open source community expanded by a lot in the year and a half too, right? It, it absolutely did. Yeah. Um, we were able to see people come in from all over the world to, you know, even just to you know, like come in and say like, hey, this is a really cool project. I would love to, you know, translate it into my language. And it's something like translations are kind of tough. So it took time before. Well, you have that time now. So, you're, you know, we saw, you know, at Mattermost, we saw all kinds of contributions, but one of the biggest ones was someone who took uh, a plugin and made it so that it was possible for people who read right to left. So, like, the Arabic languages and things like that. So they would be able to see their language in the way that they expect to see it. Um, and we were able to do that through open source. And I think that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, do you think returning to the office is beneficial for tech workers? Um, I'm going to give a longer answer, but the short answer is no. <laughs> um, I think that offices, especially with the way that tech offices have evolved, they are huge distraction centers. Uh, I, I remember going into an office at a, at a job that I had a while ago, and I, I was a remote worker, but they expected me to go in the office for like a couple of days a month. Every time I went in, no work got done. Uh, because it was always, you know, hey, we want to come over here. Hey, talk to us over here. Oh, we're playing ping pong, or these people are playing hacky sack. And it's like, I, why are you doing these things here? This is we're supposed to be getting work done. Uh, I think that most workers, most of the like average frontline independent contributors, they realize that they can do their job anywhere. Um, I think beyond not going back to the office, I think you're going to see a return to the idea of uh, this is big, like four or five years ago, the digital nomad, where people realize that they can actually like work from anywhere. The time zone is less important. People can work asynchronously. We learned that over the last year and a half. Uh, and I think that a lot of businesses, like I said earlier, will be able to realize the benefit of not having an office, not paying. I mean, they don't really understand, I think, sometimes how much goes into having a desk in an office. Like, you, you have to pay for furniture. There's insurance. There's rent. There's, you know, elevators. There's fees. There's all kinds of things on top. There's a power, you know, making sure everyone has a standing desk, all that jazz, all that crap that kind of gets dumped into this bucket that's huge and huge expenses. Getting rid of that and sending people to remote work 
helps to kind of like alleviate those expenses so you can actually spend them on things like researching development, building a better product, marketing, whatever. You can take hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars depending on the size of the company and reinvest that somewhere else while someone's working comfortably from their home at a place that they can really benefit from and build the things that we need to see. That's cool. I think I got into um, remote because of the digital nomad. Work from anywhere kind of flex hours. And mm -hmm. um, if I have the choice, I never want to go back to work. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I can. <laughs> I don't think um, I can I mean, either. We both know I'm kind of social. I like to talk. I'm a bit chatty. So I think that the idea of going into an office, I, I want it and then it's a distraction, but at the same time, I want to talk to these people. Like, what, what are they doing? What's their perspective? What are they up to? It's interesting to me, um, but a lot of offices don't want you to, and I, I shouldn't say don't want you to, but kind of discourage that kind of conversation. And, but I remember a lot of engineers who were working in offices and because of the noise around them and the people and you know, the sales team is doing this, the marketing team is doing this, and there's meetings going on over here and you can hear everything. Like I feel like the one thing that going back to offices will increase is the number of people buying noise canceling headphones um, because they just don't want to hear it. They just don't, they just want to get there and they want to do their work and they want to you know, come in, do it, go home. But I think that we actually have seen like a growth in relationship building between coworkers, especially in the tech space, by saying, hey, like maybe, I mean, you and I, we didn't meet until a year after I started with the company. Yes. Um, and only because we had an offsite. A lot of the people we work with, I've never met, but I feel close to them. I feel like we're friends. I know about their kids and their, their, their significant others and what's going on in their lives because we're forced to have that communication and we can have it asynchronously. Someone can leave a message in Mattermost, and I don't have to respond to it right away. But you know, if, if, if we need to have a conversation, we have a conversation. It just takes a little bit longer. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as the world's not on fire, there's nothing wrong with that. So I think that going back to offices just isn't going to work. Yeah, I feel I'm more productive working at home than I did at the office. Oh, definitely. I, I can get five days of work done in three days at home. <laughs> yeah. Have DevOps teams been affected by the move to remote work? Uh, I think they've been affected. I think that most people think of DevOps teams still to this day as like the emergency backup team, which is just like a, it's a small part of DevOps. It's, that's your SREs, your uh, site reliability engineers. And they are the emergency fire team whenever something goes wrong. Uh, but I think that people thought, you know, even, even when people started to move into cloud, that those people had to be centrally located. They had to be together. They had to have a place to meet. But I think what we've realized as teams went remote is that that place doesn't need to be real. It can be a virtual location. So you can have somebody in you know, a chat platform jump in and say, hey, um, listen, AWS US East has gone down because if you work in DevOps long enough, you know that AWS East goes down pretty much daily. <laughs> um, it is their oldest facility, but that's AWS's problem, not mine. But you find that what they actually have is the ability to communicate and, and get everything done without having to like, first take the time to travel into the office. So you're actually getting to the problem faster. So working remotely has been a huge, huge benefit to DevOps teams. They realize that you know they don't need to be dragged out of bed, get dressed, drive down to an office, and have to deal with an emergency at 3 o'clock in the morning. They can just roll out of bed, pop open a laptop, and be like, all right, let's get it fixed. Um, that's one of the key things, I think, is when you think about DevOps, the point of DevOps is to keep things up and running. It's, it's a large umbrella, but under that umbrella is basically the concept of keeping things moving forward. 
uh, in doing that, you know, especially when it comes to SREs, you really need to have the ability to communicate quickly. And having to drive and go into an office, that's, that's not communicating quickly. That's wasting time and energy. Um, you don't want to waste time and energy when there's an emergency. You want to make sure everything's laser focused. And I think that that's the key. When you're remote, you can continue to be laser focused, even though, you know, you're dragged out of bed. That makes sense. What is the future of DevOps? That's a complicated question. Um, a lot of people in DevOps will tell you that the whole point of DevOps is to automate things, to build and innovate so that things can move as smoothly as possible. Uh, that's true to a degree. Uh, I don't think that automation is quite as far pro progressed as most people think it is. Uh, I mean, we can use an example outside of DevOps, like automated driving. Everybody's like, automated driving is the future. And like, yeah, it is the future, but it's not the now. It's not the now. <laughs> Um, like, you know, all of these things that are coming out to make cars automated is, is wonderful and really great and it can be used for safety. But even a couple months ago, there was someone who, like, you know, a Tesla that ran through a crosswalk. It's still a problem. Yeah. Um, My Tesla's in the shop. Okay. Well, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> we'll talk about that off camera. But uh, the, the whole idea of automation is great, but you can't have automation without the human factor. So I think DevOps is constantly evolving. There's lots of things that you can't automate. CICD is a great, you know, great example. Um, it used to be that, you know, in order to merge everyone's code at the end of the day, someone had that job. That was literally a position where they had to look and resolve conflicts and then build and then merge and push forward. Now with CICD, everything kind of come together naturally, automatically, virtually. So you can continue to develop or deploy or whatever, whichever side of the, the fence you're on, you can continue to do those things without having to worry about that piece in the middle. Um, that's key. I think the, the, the future of DevOps is also realizing that some of the direct concepts of DevOps are maybe a little bit misleading or mistaken. Uh, and by that, I mean the initial concept of DevOps is any one person on a, on a te product team, building a product, building an application, should be able to do anything from A to Z, from writing the code to testing the code to deploying the code to monitoring when it's out in the world. That's great in theory, and in a utopian world, that would totally work. But while we don't need the silos that we used to have where it was like, I just write code, and then I toss it over the wall to the QA team, and they toss it over the wall to the, to the infrastructure team, I don't think you need that so much. But what you do need to do is realize that people can only train in different areas to a certain degree. Um, the idea of, you know, that was once popular of like a 10x developer, a 10x DevOps person is preposterous. It's ridiculous. We shouldn't expect anyone to do 10 times the work at any point in time. Focus on your, on your research area, focus on your work area, make sure that's working well. Overlap to learn what the other teams do so that if they do need your help, you can step in. But at no point in time should we expect that someone beginning to end knows every single step of the process. Maybe they're aware of every step of the process. Maybe they can help with every step of the process, but they shouldn't be in control of every step of the process. And I think that's the key thing that a lot of people miss with DevOps now. Now in the future, as we automate more and more things, maybe that's not necessary. Maybe we can have someone who just writes code, hits a button, it's automatically QA'd, automatically deployed, and there's monitoring so that people can watch it. But I think that a lot of people also hear automation, they think, oh, we're going to automate ourselves out of jobs. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. That is a concern for a lot of people. It's a say. huge concern. Um, and I, I know a lot of people who are in the DevOps space that say, oh, well, we're going to automate ourselves out of jobs. It's like, well, why are you doing this then? That seems crazy. Why, why are you writing the code that's going to make you not have a job anymore? But at the same time, I think they realize that there has to be a human factor. We build software applications for human beings. 
we do not build software applications for other software yet. I mean, I don't know if that far in the future will happen. But if we keep that in mind, then we need to realize there always needs to be a human factor. Uh, I think a great example of this, there was a little study done where a team had done uh, a piece on facial recognition. And the team that did it was made up of a bunch of white guys. So when they put it out in the world, they realized that people who weren't white guys didn't get picked up by the facial recognition. They oh, couldn't no. figure out what they had done wrong. They were like, oh, what do you... And that's, that's kind of where it comes at, you know, into play in DevOps. Is like, if you don't have a human factor, you're going to miss some key piece of information that may or may not get looked at correctly. Um, you know, great, another great example is with observability. A lot of people believe that observability is the wave of the future in DevOps. It's a very important piece of the puzzle. You have to have proper monitoring. You have to have a proper, you know, setup. And whether you're using, like, an open source Elk Stack kind of thing or you're using something like, you know, Humio or something else that's an observability tool, that's great. But the biggest problem with that is nine times out of ten, you only tell it to look for what you expect to look for. You're not looking for the unexpected. Mm -hmm. So part of DevOps needs to be learning what, what we mean by unexpected and how to expect the unexpected, which is a cliche, but like you have to learn that. Um, so that's talking something, about like AI now? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that, that's something that I think that AI and even machine, machine learning is not ready to pick up. Um, they're great at understanding, you know, faults and simple things, but AI is definitely not to the point of, of making a determination like, hey, I see that on server, you know, 26, we've got, you know, a lot of CPU flop. And that means that we're going to have to do something because there's something going wrong there cool but we're not there yet but that's something that an engineer could easily say like yo i know 26 is a problem 26 has always been a problem maybe we need to cancel that instance and bring up another instance or whatever but it's something a human will recognize that a machine can't learn yet uh well this has been great it's been fun <laughs> our positions have changed um you know you interviewed me like back in june at MatterCon. Mm -hmm. Um, so this has been this has been so fun. So thanks. next time I'll interview you again. So we'll just keep <laughs> flip-flopping back and forth. Okay. Thanks, PJ. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech for lots more content from the brightest minds in software development. Mm -hmm.